Well, he was a tall Virginian, trapper, Indian fighter, pioneer, peace officer, frontier politician, and lover of practical jokes and democracy. This friend and companion of Kit Carson and Jim Bridger was a true pioneer of Wyoming and Hot Springs County. The pioneers of outlaw country, cowboys, lawmen, and outlaws, to the businessmen and women who all helped shape Jermopolis and Hot Springs County, Wyoming. Here are their stories. Joe Meek, the Mountain Man. Joe Meek was described as a tall man with long black hair, smooth face, dark eyes, a harem scarum, don't care sort of man, full of life and fun. As a teenage greenhorn, Joe arrived at the wilderness of Wyoming and survived his harrowing adventures to become one of the most renowned and well-liked mountain men of his time. The Roar of the Grizzly, War Cries of the Blackfeet, and the Lonesome Song of the Wind ushered Joe Meek to a world of the mountain men. Death was a constant companion, and if you weren't at the rendezvous at the appointed time to sell your beaver pelts, it was assumed you had met the Green Reaper along the way, either by beast, enemy, or harsh weather. Joe Meek was born in 1810 among the mountains of the Old Dominion in Virginia. He was a middle child of a large family of 15 brothers and sisters and allowed to run wild too big and headstrong to be disciplined. Tall and strong for his years, he spent his time avoiding chores, hunting with his squirrel gun, and exploring the mountains in his heedless, happy-go-lucky way, learning the mountain craft that was to make him famous. Fun-loving, daring, and apt to show off, this Virginian mountaineer managed to get along with nearly everybody in Washington County, except the teacher and the preacher. His two older brothers had already left home, and he dreamed of one day joining them on their imagined adventures. One day, when his school teacher threatened him with the wooden paddle on which his ABCs were pasted, Joe grabbed it and cracked the teacher over the head instead. That was the end of Joe's formal schooling, much to his pious stepmother's chagrin. He would come to realize, just a few years later, the importance of reading when he couldn't understand the papers he was signing or read the letters from home. His school was then a distant mountain camp where he learned to read and write over a crackling fire. To reach that camp, Joe had run away from home. the incident with the school teacher, news arrived that his older brother Stephen had enlisted with a fur company at St. Louis and was heading for the Rocky Mountains. Determined to join his older brother, 16-year-old Joe hitched a ride on a wagon bound for Kentucky. 
He wandered around for months and by the following winter had made it as far as Pittsburgh. Eventually, he arrived at his brother Hiram's sawmill near Lexington, Missouri, and worked there until the fall of 1828. He then traveled down the Missouri River to St. Louis, determined to find Stephen. Just six years prior, in 1822, Major Andrew Henry and General William H. Ashley had formed a partnership in St. Louis, which eventually became the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. After their first attempt at a fort failed, Ashley and Henry instead held annual fur fairs, which they dubbed rendezvous, in some convenient, previously appointed valley in the mountains. Every summer, their trappers brought the furs they had taken, took their year's wages and goods, and obtained a new outfit for the coming year. These trappers were kept busy catching beaver in fall and spring, spent the winter hunting and trading with the Indians, and passed the summer exploring, looking for new beaver streams to conquer. Supplies were brought to rendezvous by pack trains, which also carried the furs back to market in St. Louis. Under this system, the beaver trappers had no occasion to return to the settlements or sleep under a roof. It was the very life that Joe Meek wanted for himself. I'm going near where the water runs clear, smell the pinion pine. I paid my dues, ride my shoes out across that sagebrush line. Throw my pack across my back to wait for the sun to shine. Go to pay my tune to the crazy moon. 18 years old, Joe mustered his courage and approached Captain William Sublet for a job. The formidable Bill Sublet, known as Cutface by the Indians for a well-earned scar on his chin, was an imposing force who dismissed Joe's request with a gruff, you get killed before you got halfway there. Joe grinned and according to his own stories replied, well, if I do, then I reckon I can die. Bill laughed and responded, Well, that's the game spirit. Maybe you'll do after all. Only be smart and keep your wits about you. Joe was hired that very day by his new bushway, the term used by the mountain men for the company man who supervised their trapping. He bought his supplies on credit from the fur company, its value to be deducted from his wages for the coming year. The company grew to 60 men with approximately 250 saddle and pack animals. It was still cold, with occasional snow flurries, sleet storms, and chilling rains. There were no tents in camp, and Joe was forced to find shelter where he could, even if it was just beneath his saddle. On March 17, 1829, Joe left St. Louis on his new adventure as a mountain man. The trappers of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company were to be encamped on the headwaters of Wind River in what is now Wyoming. To reach them, their most direct route would have been up the Platte River. But ever since Colonel Henry Leavenworth had made his fruitless attack on the re-villages six years earlier, those warlike Indians had made the Platte dangerous to navigate. It was also dangerous Sioux country, and so Sublet chose to go down the Santa Fe Trail where wagons and patrolling troops had kept the route safer for the past eight years. Eventually, the men parted company with the troops and rode 150 miles alone, 
before they reached Bent's Fort and turned north along the foothills of the Rockies, heading for the Platte, Sweetwater, and Wind River. Along the way, a seasoned mountain man gave Joe advice, which he credits with saving his life on more than one occasion. In Injun country, a man's got to keep his eyes skinned and his powder dry. William Sublet, known as Billy to his men, had gone up the Missouri River with Henry and Ashley in 1822. He organized his fur brigade like a military force and wouldn't stand for any foolishness from the men who followed him into the wilderness. By the time the pack train reached the foothills of the Rockies, Meek and his comrades formed a compact, disciplined, and well-trained company. They were good riders, good shots, and hard as nails. Early one morning, before the mules were packed, the top of the ridge suddenly sprouted war bonnets, lances, guns, and horses' heads. The cry went out, Engines! Hundreds of them in line of battle came sweeping down the slope on the dead run. Joe and his friends sprang up from their mess, grabbing their rifles. Sixty men against hundreds of mounted warriors. All around, it was bare prairie without any cover. They could not run. A mule would have no chance against those fleet Indian ponies. It was fight or die. Sublet immediately drew his whole force up to face the charge. They didn't know whether the Indians were charging in peace or war, for it was their custom to charge on their friends and capture them. Sublet ran out in front of his line, then turned and called back, When you hear my shot, then fire! The warriors rushed towards them. When they were only 50 paces away, Sublet threw up his own rifle, and his men did the same. According to Joe, their bold stand had its effect. As suddenly as they had charged, the Indians reined up. The chief jumped from his pony, laid his weapons on the ground, and walked quietly forward, holding up his empty palms in a sign of peace. Sublet likewise laid down his rifle and walked forward for a powwow. The two men shook hands and hugged each other, then parlayed in the sign language. Sublet learned that the Indians were a party of Sioux, Arapaho, and Cheyenne, out looking for their enemies, the Blackfeet and Crow. Sublet opened his packs and made the chief a substantial present of tobacco, blankets, powder and ball, vermilion, and brass rings. There was more handshaking and hugging. Then the chief, distributing the presents he had received among his leading warriors, mounted and led them away. The pack train continued on their journey. That year, Sublet expected to find his trappers encamped on the Popoja. They followed the stream, which meant Head River in the Crow language, until early in the afternoon, far off against the naked red sandstone bluffs, they saw columns of smoke and finally the Indian lodges, surrounded by the ponies and mules of the camp. It was July 1st, 1829. They had been three and a half months on the trail. Even the mules quickened their pace. In Indian country, you never snuck into a friendly camp. When Sublet had come within 300 yards of the nearest lodge, he suddenly let out a blood-curdling war whoop, fired his rifle into the air, and set spurs to his horse. All the old-timers slapped their open mouths with one hand as they whooped and followed. Joe and the rest of the Greenhorns joined the ruckus. It was their first rendezvous. They charged in on a dead run, shooting and yelling. By that time, the men in camp came rushing to meet them. 
far outnumbering Sublet's little band. They shouted their welcome, half blotted out by the smoke which formed from rifles along their front. The two forces melted together as everyone wheeled their horses, falling in alongside old friends to shake hands, hug each other, and shout greetings. Together, they all rushed into camp, plunging on through the smoke to stop rearing in a cloud of dust before the big Buffalo Lodge of the Bushway, headquarters of the partners of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. There's laughter in the hills when we meet at rendezvous. Goods are bought with beaver skins, and when the trade is through, we'd sing rendezvous, rendezvous, lift your bottles high. We'll dance a jig to rendezvous until the day we die. Near the Bushways Lodge stood other tall teepees belonging to the Indian wives of the well-to-do free trappers, while all around clustered the camps of the hired trappers, skin trappers, and camp keepers, wiki-ups, huts, or mere unsheltered bedrolls on the ground. After the loud greeting, the first order of business was to hand out the mail. Sublet called name after name of those to whom letters or newspapers were addressed, tossing the pieces to the claimants until all had been distributed. Next, the trapper stood in line, and as each came up with his beaver pelts, Sublet's clerk checked them in until the man's last year's debt was paid, crediting him with it on the books, and then swapping whatever the man needed for the coming year. Once a trapper had paid his debt and bought gifts for his Indian wife or girlfriend, he felt free to squander his credit. A saying in the mountains was that hell's full of money, so it was spent freely at rendezvous. Some of the mountain men spent $1,000 worth of beaver in one day. Once debts and women were taken care of, the booming business of the trade began. Sublet brought out the kegs he had packed in from the States, kegs purposely made flat to fit on a pack saddle, and knocked in the bones with a tent peg and a stone mallet. The trappers came swarming with tin cups and camp kettles, eager to wet their dry, a thirst which had been building up for a whole year of hardship, danger, and exposure. They had seen fellows frozen, killed by a horse, or shot and scalped by engines. The survivors were ready to cut loose and raise a little hell. At a time when 75 cents could buy as good a meal as New York City afforded, they gladly paid $4 a pint in prime beaver skins for diluted raw alcohol, potent enough to curl the hair of a grizzly. It had been a good year. Most of the men were young, in good health and spirits. The spring hunt was over. From mid-June until September was the holiday season, when trapping was unprofitable and the weather was fine. During rendezvous, competition grew fierce and bitter as each exalted himself and belittled his comrades. Fists began to fly and the good spirits and hijinks of the mountain men turned suddenly to violence and bloodshed. For the most part, Joe saw it was a pleasant, friendly fight of young men with too much liquor. However, during his first rendezvous, one man was killed. This sobered the brawlers sufficiently to bring their combat to an end, and they went back to milder forms of competition with cards or playing hand with the Indians. Joe Meek was horrified to see four trappers using the carcass of their dead comrade for a card table. Callously, they slapped down the cardboards on his cold back with never a sign of revulsion. 
except another swig of booze from the camp kettle. Their callousness and the laughter it inspired in others shocked Joe even more. Though astonished and ashamed by the gambling, swearing, drinking, and fighting, Joe admired the fearlessness, the scorn of sordid gain, the wholehearted merriment and abandon all around. We test our shooting skills and throw our hops and knives. We drown our souls in whiskey and fight to keep our wives. And when the cards were cut and dealt, poker games were played. Arguments and fights began and then new friends were made. In the morning, Joe recounted telling another greenhorn, Well, here we are, Doc. I reckon the green will rub off before long. By this time, Joe's boots were worn out, and the clothing he had worn on the long trail from the settlements were all in rags. He was soon outfitted with moccasins and buckskin, more fitting for the life in the Wyoming wilderness. Rendezvous was soon over. Their bushway Captain William Sublet was becoming anxious. His two partners in the fur company, David Jackson and Jebediah Smith, were to have met him and had not yet turned up. The seasoned trappers, now poor again and in debt for new outfits, were, as they put it, froze for the trail and ready to put out. They moved on from Rendezvous and finally met up with Smith at Pierre's Hole. He brought bad news. One day, he said, while he was absent from his camp, a large number of Umqua Indians had come into camp. Smith's men had carelessly laid aside their guns. Suddenly, the Indians attacked and butchered 24 of them, stole Smith's horses, furs, traps, and all. Now Jebediah was back, with the survivors and a single horse. The news of this heavy loss of life struck Joe Meek hard. To his surprise... The other men gave no sign of grief. Their simple comment was, out of luck. Joe began to understand how it was that those men at rendezvous could play cards on a dead comrade's back. Though they warmly welcomed Smith and the other survivors here in Pierre's hole, they had nothing to say about those who had gone under. Trappers lived dangerous and lonely lives, always in peril of the claws of a grizzly bear, or the sudden arrow of an enemy warrior. They never knew when a horse might cripple them with a kick or make a misstep on some mountainside, or when they might be drowned, frozen, starved, or die of thirst. War, work, and weather were trouble enough for them without adding the evils of worry. As Joe Meek later put it, live men wore what we wanted, dead ones were of no account. In September, Joe was ordered off with other trappers to make his first hunt. Of all the tribes in the mountains, the Blackfeet were most feared and hated. John Coulter, Joe learned, traveling with a band of friendly crows, had to defend himself when the Blackfeet attacked the crows. He was a good shot, and so was the first American to shoot down a Blackfoot. Ever since that day, men said, Bugs Boys, as they were nicknamed, had been relentlessly hostile to all Americans. The Blackfoot Confederacy was made up of several big tribes, all closely allied with the Big Bellies or Grovants of the Prairie. These Indians fought for glory, for horses, for enemy hair, and the sheer fun of it. They generally went to war on foot and could easily cover their trail. 
They lay in wait in thickets and gulches, as tricky, sudden, and dangerous as a rattlesnake without a rattle. Many of them had been well armed by traders. But Blackfeet or no Blackfeet, Joe and his friends had to trap the fur. Joe rode out with the rest, looking for the sign of the beaver. Fearing that the sound of gunfire might bring Blackfeet upon them, the trappers in the party did not hunt for meat, but subsisted on the flesh of the beaver they caught. Joe learned to skin his beaver, cut off the tail, and hang it on a stick by the fire to roast. The heat peeled off the skin to the meat beneath. Beaver tail tasted like marrow or boiled perch, though it was more oily than either and delicious to the hungry teenager. It was agreed that the winter quarters would be on the Wind River. They all packed up to make the fall hunt in American territory. Sublet himself planned to go up Henry's Fork of Snake River towards the north past the Missouri Lake, where the Madison Fork of the Missouri River rises. The area was in dangerous Blackfoot country, much of it unexplored. Before the camp on the forks of the snake could pull out, Joe was in his first Indian fight. It was an early morning, still twilight, when Meek heard the call to turn out. He was just ready to loosen the lariats and hobbles of his mules when he heard a high-pitched yelp, a chorus of war whoops, and the beat of hooves on the hard, dry prairie coming on the run. While Joe clung to the rearing mule, he saw the flash of gunfire, the ragged silhouette of a hundred warriors, half hidden in white powder smoke. They tore by, waving blankets as they tried to stampede the horses. As the smoke drifted away, Joe saw that most of the horses were still hobbled and staked out securely. The black feet had jumped the camp a little too quick. Had they waited but a few minutes longer, all the animals would have been turned loose and they might have swept off the whole herd. It was all over in a moment before Joe knew what to do or could do anything but hang on to his mule. As suddenly as they had come, the Indians were gone. Afterwards, Meek picked up a pair of moccasins one of the attacking brave had dropped. For the next few hours, the tired men built a big pole corral to hold the stock for the night. At about eight o'clock, the bushway came around to tell Joe, who was about to turn in for the night, that he was detailed for guard duty. When his watch came and they awakened him, Joe and an old-timer named Reese took up their blankets and rifles and stumbled to the far side of the camp. Exhausted, the two men fell asleep on their watch. The next thing Joe knew, he heard Sublick swearing, coming around the corral to inspect the guard. Cursing his bad luck, Joe knew that a guard caught napping would have to walk all the next day, carrying his saddle, if he was lucky. Apparently, the captain's last call, all's well, had not been answered. But Reese called to the captain in a loud whisper, Down, Billy! Injuns! Suddenly, Sublet's tall figure vanished as he bellied down beside Reese. Meek heard him answer, Where? Where? Reese whispered back reproachfully, They were right there when you hollered so. Still angry, Sublet demanded defensively, Where's Meek? Raising his voice a little so Meek could hear, Reese replied, He's trying to shoot one. 
the captain demanded to know how many engines were out there. Joe said, I can't make out just how many there are, Captain. At last, Sublet went back to bed. But come sunup, they knew he would be looking for Blackfoot sign around camp. And if he found none, there might be hell to pay. Joe grabbed a pair of Blackfoot moccasins out of his possible sack. Before daylight, he tossed them away on the far side of camp where somebody would be bound to look. After sunup, the horse guard found the moccasins and brought them to Sublet, and the Bushway publicly praised the two poker-faced guards for their vigilance the night before. Joe Meek continued to explore the Wyoming wilderness despite the daily dangers. He survived grizzly bears and near drownings. At one point, he was even lost in the Tetons after a Blackfeet raid scattered their camp. He reunited with his companions in Coulter's Hell, the bubbling hot springs of the future Yellowstone National Park. The green rubbed off before the end of the year, and he spent the cold winter along the banks of the Wind River that would one day be Hot Springs and Fremont County. When fashions changed and the beaver fur trade died off, Joe eventually moved on to become a founding father of Oregon and a successful politician with his Nez Pierce bride at his side. No matter the journey his life took, Wyoming was forever etched into his soul and he regaled his audiences with tales that although fantastic, were mostly true. There is laughter in the hills when we meet at rendezvous. Goods are bought with beaver skins and when the trade is through, we'd sing rendezvous, rendezvous, lift your bottles high. We'll dance a jig to rendezvous until the day we die. There is laughter in the hills when we meet at rendezvous. Goods are bought with beaver skins and when the trade is through We'd sing rendezvous, rendezvous, lift your bottles high We'll dance a jig to rendezvous till the day we die Joe Meek will forever be the cheerful mountain man full of life and pranks Thank you for listening to Pioneers of Outlaw Country. I am your host, Jackie Dorothy. Be sure to subscribe to Pioneers of Outlaw Country so you don't miss a single episode of this historic series. The stories of our pioneers were brought to you by the Hot Springs County Pioneer Association. And this podcast was supported in part by a grant from Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund, a program of the Department of State Parks and Cultural Resources. This is a production of Legend Rock Media. With a special thank you to Tony Messler and the Many Strings Band. <laughs>